Go ahead and grab your Bible and open up with me to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2 is where we'll be. Hebrews 2, we'll look at verse 10 through 19 tonight. Hebrews 2, verse 10. These are the words of God. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Let's pray. Our Father in God, we know that unless your Spirit opens our eyes, hearts, and minds, that we won't hear your word. And we also know that the result of that is a hardened heart. We ask for your divine favor and help as we look at our text tonight. And we also ask that the preaching of the word will result in new life. We ask all of this in the name of Christ, our King. Amen. Amen. One thing that we must always keep clear, especially for our young church plant, is that we do not exist for our sake. The vast majority of churches in our country think that they exist as religious goods and services dispensing machines and that the, the only thing that matters is developing pragmatic programs to appease carnal men. So forget sound doctrine and theological preaching, forget the kingdom of God in the world, forget trying to labor for mercy and justice, forget all of it. That's the prevailing attitude. Most staff meetings and board meetings are centered around this question. How can we get more people in our seats? By the way, um, some are more righteous than God about it because they'll do it all in the name of reaching people. Now, I say this not as someone um, on the outside looking in, um, but rather as someone who lived and led in this type of environment for nearly seven years. How can we get more creative energy on a Sunday morning? What sort of event can we plan that will um, reach the community and just everybody will come flooding into our doors? How do we develop this program further so that more people will participate in it? These, um, these types of statements and thinking are very, very real. The church in America is busy playing church, costumes and all. Instead of being a countercultural force to be reckoned with, we've become just another booth at the flea market trying desperately to get people to purchase our product. Consequently, 
sound doctrine and sound practice get thrown aside in exchange for pragmatism. Just do whatever, whatever it takes. Now, this sort of thinking loses sight of why we're actually here. The design of the gospel of the kingdom is to conquer the earth. The design of the gospel of the kingdom is to conquer the earth. That's the whole point of it. Jesus Jesus didn't come, and kids, you need to know this. Jesus didn't come and die and then go into hiding and then wish for the best. Jesus Christ intends to save the world. Yet most Christians don't believe this. And the reason they don't believe it is because they don't understand the nature of the gospel. And they don't understand the purpose of the gospel. Our current debacle in our culture can be traced back to poor theology in the church. People just don't understand why the gospel of the kingdom exists the way it does, and they don't care to figure it out either. So instead of trying to figure it out, we pimp out the local church with gaudy makeup and all, and then we wonder why we still murder children in the womb. And at the present time, we seem to be losing ground to the secular humanists, and that's because we don't understand the kingdom of God. And worse yet, we don't even care. Two weeks ago, we focused on the transcendency of Christ. The transcendency of Christ simply refers to his current lordship as a distinct person. For someone to be transcendent is for that person to be supreme, sovereign, ultimate, and other. He's distinct, um, ineffable. He is ultimate. Tonight, though, I want to look at the other side of the same coin and look at the imminency of Christ. The imminency of Christ, which simply refers to his work inside of creation, within creation. He is um, sovereign and distinct and um, not to be confused and tangled up with creation. That's typically what the pantheists think. Um, he's distinct, but he's not just distinct. He works inside that which he creates. That's his imminency. Now, Basic to Christian doctrine and Christian theology is what we call the creator-creature distinction. The creator-creature distinction. You can read about this in Romans 1. God is the creator. We are the creation. That's basic Christianity 101. Furthermore, Scripture teaches that because of this distinction, we can say that God is both transcendent and imminent. Because of this distinction, God being the creator, we the creation, God is transcendent and he is imminent. Now, only Christian doctrine gives you this. Only the Christian worldview, as revealed in Scripture, gives you this. No other religion provides this theological construct. So when we speak of God, we speak of both his distinction and his separation from creation, meaning that God is not defined, nor is he composed of something created, for he's always existed, right? He's eternal. And yet, he is also imminent, which also means that he works with inside of his creation. So his being is not to be defined by creation. That's why metaphors of the Trinity don't always work. Uh, there's nothing like the Trinity, so his being, his ontology, is not to be confused and defined by creation, but his being does involve himself in creation. So, so God is distinct from creation, and yet he also works inside of it. 
One of the ways that God accomplished this imminence is through Jesus Christ, the Son of God. When the second person of the Trinity took on human flesh, what we call the Incarnation, the imminency of God was on full display. We just um, celebrated the Christmas season, this Christmas story. That is all about imminency. That's all about Christ, God in Christ coming here. So know that, kids, when you think about God and, and when you ponder his thoughts and you, you hear his word and you try to think about how big God is and great he is. God isn't just out there distinct from creation. He's also right here. God is present in his creation. So that's God's sovereignty in, in his world, in creation. This is incredibly important to understand and apply for reasons we'll get into later. But for now, keep this basic understanding in your mind as we walk through this passage. So let's go ahead and, and, and look at the text, and, and we'll look at that in just one moment. The writer here picks up where we left off last week, reminding us that Jesus Christ came to restore man to his dominion calling. Jesus Christ came to restore man to his dominion calling. Man in Christ... That's us, Christians, brothers and sisters in Christ. We are to put everything into subjection to God. We are to make sure that Planned Parenthood is in subjection to God. And we ought not to stop until that happens. So everything from everything, creation to how we handle fossil fuels, everything, education, politics, business, all of it, all of it is to be put underneath the lordship of Jesus. It's all supposed to be put under the feet of Jesus. And it's our job to make sure it happens. That's our calling. And, and that's only going to happen in Christ. You can't, you can't do it outside of Christ. That's ultimately why uh, you have different even religions um, that will say we're laboring for justice. And we're, we're here. Well, you can't do that apart from Christ. So you can try and you may be successful in, to some degree. But in the long run, only subjection, subjection can only happen in Christ. Since man sinned in Adam, Christ came as the second Adam to suffer and die, to taste death for everyone, verse 9 says, so that God's purposes in the world could be realized. Let's go ahead and look at verse 10. So keep in mind last week and the text before us and, and the train of thought. Verse 10. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. It was fitting for God, for whom and by whom all things exist, who intends to bring many sons to glory, right? How do you, what's, what is man's purpose? What's our goal to, to, to um, love God and enjoy him forever, right? Um, God's glory is the end, bringing many sons to glory. So it's fitting for God, for whom and by whom all things exist, to make Jesus the founder of our salvation, quote, perfect through suffering. Jesus is the founder. He's the pioneer. And if you have a King James Version, he's the captain of our salvation. God desires to bring his chosen ones to glory. And the way he accomplishes this is equipping Jesus to be our savior. And he did the equipping by means of his suffering. 
That's the train of thought. The, the purpose of everything is the glory of God, and Jesus being our Savior is to that same end. Now, <clears throat> the text says that Jesus was made, quote, perfect through suffering. Perfect through suffering. Je- are we saying Jesus was not perfect? Perfect through suffering. What, is, what does it mean? What the author is telling us is that Jesus was tempted, and yet he did not sin. Jesus was tempted in every way that we are. We'll see that again in Hebrews, come up later. But he didn't sin. He was set apart. He was consecrated for this special office. So the point is, the suffering Jesus endured prepare him to be our founder, our captain. Jesus is our prince. Jesus is Messiah the prince, the ruler of the world, and he's the ruler of God's people. The way that rulership is brought to its fitting goal is through suffering. So in other words, the the point he's um, stating here, Jesus on the cross is the training ground for his leadership, his captaincy. That's why he's the founder of our salvation, because he suffered. Look at verse 11. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. When Christ saves a man, he doesn't save him and then leave him to fend for himself. Jesus is our prince. He's our captain. He's the one who paved the way for our salvation. He was the one who went before us in death so that we would die in him and then rise in him. Because he is our prince, because he is our captain, our founder, all of us under his authority then are being sanctified. We are being sanctified. Um, No man is sanctified by his filthy rags. You can't do it. No man is sanctified because he just pulled himself up uh, by his moral bootstraps and he figured it out finally, right? He got his act together. No man is sanctified. You are not, children, sanctified in Christ by your good deeds or your um, bad deeds even. None of that happens. Jesus does the sanctifying and he does all the sanctifying. It's not something we do for God. We don't hold ourselves up and say, God, look how sanctified I am. (laughs) He'll he'll just laugh at you and then if you're gentle, he'll use a two-by-four in your head. Sanctification is something God does. And this is is where the text gets interesting actually. For he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified, it says, all have one source. Now, I don't like this translation in the ESV. They even have a note there uh, because I think it misses the point. What the writer is saying is we we are all one people in Christ. We are all one in Christ. And bringing us as sons um, to glory, the way God does it is through Jesus. But one of the ways that is accomplished is by understanding that Jesus is the head of a new humanity. Jesus is the head of a new humanity. We are one in Him. And we'll come back to this momentarily. The author quotes from Psalm 22, which was read earlier. Um, He then refers to a a couple of different passages, actually, in the other quote. And then there's a third quote from Isaiah chapter 8. These quotations... 
And there are lots of them in Hebrews, and we've already looked at several of them. But these quotations are meant to emphasize something crucial about the argument here. To start, verse 11 at the end tells us that Christ is not ashamed to call us brothers. Why? Why would it be shameful? Well, (laughs) he became a man, and we are not great, (laughs) to put it mildly. It would be shameful, it would seem. But he's not ashamed. He's not a, Jesus is not ashamed of his people. Um, I, I've heard somebody say this not too long ago. Um, you know, man, Jesus has to put up with us so much, right? I don't, I don't think that's good theology. I don't think Jesus puts up with us. I think his love is much better than that, than just putting up with us. I think his, he, he's not ashamed of, of his people. He's not ashamed of us. He's not ashamed of what he did for us in his suffering, nor is he ashamed of what he intends to do for us. In this particular passage, Christ stands in the middle of the church, and what does he do? He sings. He sings. He trusts God in his gospel ministry. He is our brother. That's how imminent he is. He's near. And and Jesus isn't with us right now, begrudgingly sitting in the corner, just wishing that I would be done. Maybe he is. I don't. <laughs> um, he's, he's rejoicing in this. He rejoices in God's people. Jesus sings in the midst of the congregation. He's the soloist in our worship. God delights in saving his people. He delights when they worship him, not just corporately um, when we, we sing to him, though that's true, but in all of our lives. Kids, when you obey your parents, Jesus is delighted. He's happy. He, he's happy. He's there with us when we are obedient. And so Jesus sings about all of it. Woe to the man whose singing is glib and irreverent. None of us have a, none of us um, can pout or should pout while we're singing. Jesus does no such thing. Look at verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So Jesus took on flesh and blood just like us. He partook of the same things and then died. He took on death. Why did, he, why did Jesus take on death? He took on death because man was cursed to death for his sin. And not only that, Jesus did it with a purpose. Jesus died, listen carefully, Jesus died so that he would destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. And in in his destroying of the devil, he delivered the slaves. 
our fear of death is because we know deep down that we deserve to die. We know deep down that God is a judge, and He is not just a judge. He is a righteous judge, and that His judgments are all righteous. There's no error in the whole system of the courts of heaven. There's no one, there's not a, not a prosecutor anymore. Jesus, Satan has been dethroned. He has been um, defeated. Uh, so there, there's, no, there's no problem in the courts of, of heaven. But our fear of death is because we know that we deserve to die. We know it. We know, Christians know deep down, we deserve death. We sinned against God. We deserve it. And the author here says that the greatness of Christ's atonement isn't just that our sins are forgiven, as true and important as that is. The writer focuses on, one, the destruction of the Satan, the accuser, and two, the deliverance of those under his covenantal curse. So the point is simple. There is room in this world for one ruler and only one ruler, and his name is Jesus Christ. That's why it's important to have a gospel of the kingdom, because Satan is not right now ruling and reigning the nations. He's just not. Um, he has been, uh, the strong man has, has him tied up. He is gnawing away. He has no fangs anymore. They've been taken out. And his power is simply um, impotent. But there's only one room in this, there's only uh, room in this world for one ruler, and that's Jesus. And remember what Jesus said in John 12. He said, now is the ruler of this world cast out. Now, not in 2,000 years when I come back in Jerusalem and sit on a literal throne and then my kingdom will come. Nothing to do with that. Uh, And also remember how he finishes that in John 12. Now is the ruler cast out. As a consequence of Satan being cast out, Jesus said he would draw all people to himself. So why will the gospel be successful in history? Why are we so crazy to believe that Jesus Christ intends to actually disciple the nations? Why, when you tell your friends, you know, when they ask you about Cross and Crown Church, and you probably have had this, I get this all, I get this too, uh, what makes your church distinct? You know, we could say, well, our fog machine is better. Um, You know, we have an impressive light system. we, we could say those things. Uh, <laughs> the shade's not there on the lights. What, <laughs> you, why, you might get caught up and you might say, well, we are, we're fools for Christ because we think he means what he says. That, you know, he, so whenever you um, explain that, that we, we think the gospel will be successful in history, you know, do you ever get that look like they look like, um, they look at you like you have three heads? What? That's so counterintuitive. Why do we have the audacity to believe that the inexorable outcome of gospel preaching will be gospel success? Well, the answer is simple. It's because Satan has been cast out and Jesus is now drawing everyone to himself. The cross wasn't just a defeat of Satan. It was a Christ-exalting, utter humiliation and rout of the devil. The slaves were set free because their Lord was conquered and his pretend kingdom completely toppled. The writer goes on to speak of Jesus coming low in the incarnation, not as an angel, but as a man. A man sent as a seed of Abraham to help Abraham's offspring. Verse 16. In order to accomplish this, he had to be like his brothers in every respect. Jesus had to be man. 
in every respect so that he could be a merciful and faithful high priest. In other words, to truly serve God as, as the true and better high priest and not like the usual high priests, Jesus had to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And in order to do that, he had to be like them. Verse 17, he had to be like them. Because he was man, he was subject to the suffering of temptation. And in that, in his successful resistance to temptation and in his tasting of death, he can help us. He can help us. Verse 18 should be underlined in your Bible. For he, because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Look, none of this is going to work if we, don't, if we walk around with swagger and think that we don't need God's help. That we're going to abolish human abortion, that, that we are going to um, bring humility to the state who thinks it's God and rules as its own you know, God. None of that's going to happen if we walk around thinking we don't need God to do it. We need someone to help us. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's, that's just a quick overview of the text. Now I want to apply it. The point of this passage rests on the fact that Jesus is our older brother. We are part of his huge family with innumerable constituents. And he came to rescue his siblings who were wallowing in darkness. The point of the passage is, rests on the fact that Jesus is our older brother. Right? He sings in the midst of the congregation. He is our brother. We are a part of this huge family with innumerable constituents. That's the beauty of Revelation, that no one could count. No one could count. There's no math whiz who could get there. And he came to rescue his siblings who were wallowing in darkness. This coming speaks of the imminence of Christ in the incarnation. And this incarnation speaks to the nature of the problem. Listen, there is a theological paradigm that is often ignored. And as I mentioned at the outset of this message, I'm convinced that most Christians ignore it on purpose because we'd rather do other things because it's a lot more fun. You know, they don't want their comfortable lives to change and so on and so forth. The paradigm, this theological paradigm has to do with two humanities. Two humanities. There are two types of people in the world. Those in Adam, those in Christ. And this, that theme will actually underlies really the whole book of Hebrews. Those in Adam are those who are still under the curse. All men start in this camp, but not all end up there forever. Those in Adam are those dead in sin, unyielding in their rebellion. Those in Adam are those who have unregenerate hearts and are in open hostility towards God. In Adam all die. Those in Christ, however, are those who have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, who are daily being conformed to the image of Christ through obedience to God's law word, who, who used to be dead in sin, and they know it, they know they used to be dead in sin, but, but instead they died with Christ, and now they're made alive in Him. They went outside the camp with Jesus, and now they live for His glory. In, in Adam all die, in Christ all are made alive. When Jesus came as the Son of Man, He came so as a son of Adam. Jesus took on flesh. Jesus took on flesh. The incarnation was God taking on human flesh. 
Jesus Christ, as um, we said in the Chalcedonian definition there, he was truly man, truly man, truly God. In taking on human flesh, Jesus was, as our text demonstrates, subjected to everything that flesh and, flesh and blood is subjected to. Enticement, temptation, everything. He was subjected to it all as a son of Adam. Jesus was tempted, yet he did not sin. He was tried, and he did not waver. The ultimate test, though, of Jesus of his humanity was his death, the death of Christ. Would he trust God completely? And, and Brother John read the text from Psalm 22. Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And um, I'm not with most people who take that as Jesus giving up on his trust of the Father. Uh, if you read the context of Psalm 22, <laughs> his confidence is very strong. Jesus went to the cross knowing for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. He knew that his father would justify him, would declare him, and that's what the resurrection is. Um, Jesus was proved useful. He was proved useful as our captain of our salvation through his suffering. And that ultimate test was his death. By dying at the hands of those in Adam, Jesus, a son of Adam, was then to be raised as a new and renewed Adam. In his resurrection, man was renewed. The new humanity in the second Adam, the last Adam, was now being produced. New progeny, new, new offspring, right? The seed of the woman against the seed of the serpent. The seed of the woman wins because the seed of the woman is Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ crushes the head of the serpent. Now, in order to bring God, uh, in order for God to bring many sons to glory, it was necessary for the Son of Glory to come to take on flesh, take the penalty of man for his disobedience, and then wrap it all up and cast it into the depths of the ocean to be forgotten about. That's how this process works. That's why it, we're not pragmatists about salvation. Well, it just works. It does work, but we're confident because Jesus did it for us. Now, there are many, many illustrations in this passage to describe this theological paradigm. So I'm going to give you a few. We are not sons. We were not sons. And we were not glorious. Jesus is the Son, and He is glorious. We had no captain. We had no founder of our salvation. Jesus is the captain. We weren't sanctified, and yet Jesus came to sanctify us. We weren't brothers in the congregation, but Jesus, our brother, brought us into the congregation. Uh, we were underneath the covenantal lordship of Satan. Jesus came to slay him. We feared death because of our rebellion, but Jesus took on death by defeating Satan. We had no captain to destroy the devil. Jesus has a sword, and in his captaincy, he destroyed him. Continue. There, there's so many in this text. We were not offspring of Abraham, and yet as Gentiles, Jesus brought us into the family of Abraham. We had no high priest, yet through his suffering, he became one for us. <laughs> not only did we not have a high priest, we didn't even have a propitiation, which means that God's wrath was still upon us. Yet, Jesus came, and in his death, he drank the cup of God's wrath, thus becoming our propitiation. We were tempted and always led to sin. 
Jesus was tempted for us, so now, now we have someone who can identify with us. We were dead in Adam. Christ came as a second Adam to bring us life. And on and on and on and on we could go. Jesus is simply better. <laughs> That's the point of Hebrews. He's better. He's greater. He's not just transcendent. He's imminent. He is near. As I mentioned last week, one of the things Jesus did for us is He gave us back our calling to take dominion in the world. God made us to exercise dominion. But in Adam, we we surrendered our calling. We became incapable of godly dominion, incapable of carrying out God's kingdom demands um, here on earth. Yet Jesus Christ, the last Adam, came to restore us to that calling. However... The only way that that calling could be restored was through atonement and regeneration. And that's why those are here in your text. Atonement and regeneration. Not only does the atonement forgive us our sins, it restores us in Christ to our original task of godly dominion. If we don't make this connection, we are at risk of minimizing the atonement. Thus, we make it just about me. And I fear that's... (laughs) Together for the gospel is together for the atonement. Personal salvation, just sort of a me and Jesus, you know, no creed but Christ. (laughs) Exciting relationship, just me, nothing demanded of me in the world. Dominion belongs to men, not angels. It belongs to those in the second Adam, not the first Adam. So the purpose then of the atonement is to get us back to this calling, to get back to work in the world. Jesus was made perfect, which means that he experienced all of what man experiences, and he carried everything to its intended goal. That's why he's prince. That why, that's why he's the captain. I, I laugh with the, you know, G, Jesus is my co-pilot. <laughs> no, he's the pilot, and you're being dragged by the car in the back because you're not capable of driving the car, so get out. Um, but he, Jesus is our captain. He's leading the army towards global dominion. That's, that's what he's leading us to. And the church has said, you know what? Uh, you can lead that way. We're not going there. We're just going to go ahead and find some things to do over here. Um, We'll have endless Bible studies. We won't care about the, the unborn, but, you know, that's, that's something else. Now, I say, all this is be- <laughs> I say all this because we have gotten quite used to dumbing down the gospel of the kingdom, forgetting the whole kingdom part. When most people, especially your average Reformed person, speaks of the gospel, what they mean is the atonement. And hat tip to Brother Lucas for a little brief conversation about that. If you remember a couple weeks ago, you had me thinking, what's the gospel? That's the question. And here's how the answer is typically responded. Jesus died for me. Is that the gospel? Indeed, it is part of the gospel, but it isn't the gospel. And yes, we should preach Christ and him crucified. But let's not forget what the implications of the crucifixion actually are. If we want to have gospel impact in society, then we have to press the crown rights of King Jesus into all areas of life. And one of the ways we do this is by seeing the implications of the imminent Christ in society. Here's what I mean. We have an imminent Christ who deals with a transcendent problem. We have an imminent Christ... We have an imminent Christ, someone who's near, who deals with a transcendental problem. Here's, in other words, 
in Adam, men want to take that which is imminent and make it transcendent. In other words, they, they want to take the, the created order and make it ultimate and authoritative. So follow and track with me. That's, that's why men would rather believe that they evolved from pond scum than bend the knee to Christ. That's why the ultimate standard of truth in our culture right now is not something that's transcendent, not something that transcends us. It's, it's here. Um, you ask anybody, what, you know, what is truth? And tr- truth right now is this, whatever one wants it to be. We have, <laughs> we have people who want it to be true, who want it to be final, who want it to be authoritative and transcendental, that genders are moldable. We call them gender benders. We have a society that's so upside down, it doesn't know where to go from here. We, we are progressing, right? We're progressives, and, but we, no one knows what we're progressing to. There's no definitive, transcendental, authoritative, sovereignly administered standard. We're just stuck here, and we're going somewhere, so get on the bus. No, thank you. I'd rather not drive off the cliff. This is why only Christian doctrine can get things straight. Men want to take the created order, the imminent creation, and they want to make it transcendent. They want to take all the stuff down here. Here's the big one, my feelings. That's authoritative now, just because I feel a certain way or feel like today I want to be a coffee maker, then I am, and you must call me Sir Coffee Maker. And if you don't, you'll be fined 200 bucks and thrown in jail for 30 days. Um, You get it. So men want to take the created order, the imminent creation, and make it transcendent, make it finally authoritative. So that's that's what all man-centered religions do. Another, well... That's redundant. All, relig- all religions apart from Christ are man-centered. And not only that, they have to have an atonement, though, to do it. Why else do you think Planned Parenthood exists? To provide atonement. Someone must die so that I can be saved. And by salvation, that is typically means live however I want. After all, it is believed, you know, children are a burden and a hindrance to my goals. It's blasphemy. And this is why it's so incredibly important to have sound theology so we can effectively combat the prevailing religious narratives of the day. So we, we will not press the crown rights of King Jesus into all areas of life if we don't know what we're supposed to use to do the pressing. This Christian doctrine is a tool we're supposed to use. Do you, do you want to press the gospel into your personal life, your family life? Press the gospel here in this fellowship? Press the gospel into a society that wants nothing of it. Start pushing the antithesis. Start calling out the idols. Start demanding that people obey Christ. Start talking. Keep in mind a couple of basic principles. For one, all law is religious in nature. All law demonstrates what the religious culture thinks about right and wrong. All law is ethical. You can't get around it. And all cultures are religious too. Culture is the visible manifestation of religious presuppositions. I'll say it again. Culture is the visible manifestation of religious presuppositions. Everyone's religious. 
You know, that's, that's what we have. Murder millions of children. Check. Twist the image of God and man even more. Check. What, is all, what does all the confusion tell us about our religious convictions? What does it say? What is our nation... What's our doctrinal statement saying right now? Who's providing atonement? Who's, who is the one that is calling the transcendental shots? What does it say about society at large when we continue to legislate immorality? It tells us that we have an imminency, imminency problem. That's the problem. We have a transcendency problem. We have an imminency problem. We think we're authoritative. Nothing exists outside of us to tell us what to do. There's no standard but us. We have a problem. Now, no social order can last long if the prevailing conviction is that of a hatred of God. No society is going to last long if there is a prevailing notion of hatred of God. Scripture says that those who hate God, quote, love death. Only death and sin and destruction can prevail in a culture whose religious presuppositions are founded on something other than Christ Jesus. And these types of social orders, they have no atonement that's real. There's no sacrifice that can truly atone. There's no mercy. There's no forgiveness. There's no grace. That's why we as a fellowship and church have to build a social order that rivals the social order of the hour. We have an imminent Christ to anchor us in a transcendent God. We have the atonement. We have the forgiveness. We have a sure foundation of sanctification. We have God's law word and we have life. And that's really the message here. It's the gospel of the kingdom because it's a gospel of life. That's why the author of Hebrews can tell us that we are no longer slaves, uh, that Satan no longer has dominion over, over us or this world, that we are now able to have someone truly help us. Why? Because Christ is imminent. He is near. He, he gives us forgiveness in his sacrificial death so that we can be victorious in him in all areas of life. And I'll say this final thing. If Hebrews is the, the, the covenantal treaty, the law word of God given to the church before conquering the world with the gospel, and that's what it is, then it follows that there's no conquering of the world without this doctrine. We, we have been given a task. We've been given a foundation. Church, we have a captain. We have a prince. He has come near. He has restored us. And thanks be to God that he is here to help. Let's pray.